go to Psalm chapter 6, Psalm chapter 6. Kids, if you have your Bibles, open them up too. It's the, if you open your Bible almost right to the middle, you'll find the book of Psalms. And then work your way towards the beginning. There's 150 of them, so Psalm 6 is towards the beginning. Kids, want to welcome you guys this morning. Uh, fifth Sunday of the month, we usually don't have kids' church and have them join us in the service. I, truth be told, I'm always like, speaking to adults doesn't bother me. Speaking to kids always makes me nervous. I think I've told you guys this story before, but one of the first times I ever spoke uh, publicly was I was traveling with this group of guys and um, we stopped at this elementary school out in Kansas, rural Kansas, okay? And, uh, and it was one of the first things that we did. We'd do skits and share testimonies and stuff like that, share the gospel and the school let us in. And, and uh, one of the guys was more used to doing this, so he was going to speak first and he's like, hey, when do you want to speak next? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll share, no problem. You know, elementary kids, how hard could it be? And uh, man, I can still, I was up on like a little stage like this, and I got up there, and I was like, and I'm not kidding, it's like a horror movie in my mind, like I can still see, there were so little, their little legs weren't even touching the floor, like their little legs were just swinging, and I was like, and I just could, I couldn't get anything out, and it was a complete train wreck, so kids, you make me nervous, but I love you, and uh and so does Jesus, and we're going to talk about him this morning. Let me just read this first. It's just uh, 10 verses. Psalm chapter 6, and we'll talk about it. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with all my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray one more time. Father, I love you. I thank you for this morning. Lord, we love your word, and we're trusting you right now in these moments that we have together to open the eyes of our heart, that we could see wonderful things from it, and that you would cause us, cause us to worship you this morning, because you are worthy of it all, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if, uh, if you're a basketball fan, this is kind of a fun time of year. We've got the NBA playoffs, just getting ready to start uh, high school boys and girls tournaments just finished up here, and uh, you got March Madness going on, which is the NCAA Division I uh, tournament going on. There's been some really good games, and uh, if you watch basketball or sports at all, one of the things that's become very, or, or a lot more popular in the last several years, is that the people, like the announcers on TV that will be commenting on the game, uh, more and more of them are former players. And uh, usually what happens is there's kind of like a broadcast guy or a TV guy, uh, a journalist of some sort, but they usually pair them 
with somebody that uh, is a former player that's now e either retired or something or has some sort of background in basketball or in the sport, <coughs> and they kind of help announce. And I always, I, I like that. I, 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 you, you can always tell when somebody is talking about the game from their own experience. So you can, you know, they, they talk about it differently than the guy that's just commenting on it, maybe knows about it, but hasn't ever really played. You can, you can tell um, that those guys that played, they just, they just talk about it as if they had played, their insights and their um, kind of details and uh, different ways that they explain the play and bring out nuance of what was, what was being run and what was, and what was being done. And as we've been going through the Psalms, I, I, I say that because I've just been struck by how when David speaks about God, um, he speaks about it like somebody who's played the game. What I mean by that is he speaks about God like somebody who has experience with this God and who knows this God. He doesn't just speak from head knowledge, but he speaks from experiential knowledge. His theology isn't just something that he's learned off in some classroom or some ivory tower somewhere and has no application to his life. These truths about God that he speaks of, they're very real to him and they're anchors for him. They are comforts for him. And I think this is true not just of David, but again, if you, if you get your theology from the Bible, and hear me, I'm all about reading other books and you know, systematic theologies and stuff like that, that's all helpful, but in the end, this is what we have to come back to, and if we continually come back to this, then each one of us also should, when we speak about God, we will speak about him like we know him, because we're actually living with him and not just learning about him in a classroom, although obviously... There's a time and a place and a place for that. And um, I don't know, as I, I guess I say that too because as I want to frame this this morning to kind of help us work our way through this text is that uh, David, his theology, it's theology that's on fire. And it's very, and it's very real. And within kind of the, the realm of systematic theology, you have all these other ologies that fall under. So, so theology is just, in, in the general sense, is just the idea of the study of God. But in, within that, you have Christology, which is the study of Christ, pneumatology, the study of the Spirit, um, and all these different ologies. And, and here in this psalm, there's kind of three ologies that David touches on. And although he doesn't use this language, I want to show you that it's there. But more importantly, I want to show you that it's there, that David's speaking about it, and why it matters. Why it matters. Why all of us need to know theology. Because we need a place that we can run to. We need something that we can cling to. We need to, we need to have truth that will uphold our lives. A rock that we're, that we're planted upon. And uh, kind of the three ologies that I see uh, David speaking of here is what you would call theology proper which would just be kind of the nature and the character of God. Uh, the second one is a little less popular, you may not have heard of, but it's called homardiology, and it's just simply the study of sin, what the Bible has to say about sin. And then lastly, you have what you would call, call soteriology, uh, which is the study of salvation. So David touches on theology proper, the nature and character of God, homardiology, the study of sin, and soteriology, 
the study of our salvation. And, uh, and each one of these matters. And it fuels, it fuels David's, David's worship. And they're all connected. And so I just want to give them to you up front here um, because they're so interwoven or maybe linked together like links in a chain that it's going to be hard for me to begin to talk about one without talking about the next one. Um, and so I want to give them to you all up front here and then I'll kind of point them out as we go along. But first of all, like under the heading of theology proper, is that David had a view of God that caused him both to fear him and to run to him. David had a view of God that caused him both to fear him but also to run with him. Right along with that, David had a view of sin that caused him to take it very seriously. Homardiology. David, ha David had a view of sin. His homardiology caused him to take sin very seriously. And lastly, David's soteriology is that David had a view of salvation that caused him to only, exclusively, boast in the Lord and no one else. So again, David had a view of God that caused him both to fear him and to run to him. David had a view of sin that caused him to take it very seriously. And David had a view of salvation that caused him to only boast in the Lord. So let's look at this together. Verse 1, <clears throat> he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So David is speaking to God, but he is concerned that God is the one that is going to discipline him, not just a little bit, but in his anger and in his wrath. So David here is speaking to God, but notice that the one that he has to deal with is not, in this case, so much his enemy, although he does speak about that later, and I'll show you how that connects. But he's not so much concerned here with people outwardly trying to get him, as we've seen earlier in Psalm 3 and in Psalm 4. But the issue here, the enemy that David is dealing with, is David, his own sin. And he's appealing to God, and he says, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He fears him, but he also runs to him. And guys, I want us to understand how important it is for us to hold a view of God that causes us to fear him. And by fear him, I don't just mean, oh man, he's really big, that's neat, and then move on. I mean, when I say fear him, I mean fear him. The Bible says in Hebrews that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God is infinitely holy. Our, our sun is one medium-sized star. There are a billion stars in our galaxy, and there are literally billions of galaxies, okay? Numbers, when they get this big, I have no idea what they mean. You know, I can barely count past 10. But it, there are literally, at least, and this is all only that we've discovered, there are 100 billion trillion stars. And that, that's a number, according to, you know, some research I did online. 100 billion trillion. It's not just making stuff up. That's what we know. 
And our sun is just one of those hundred billion trillion stars. And at its core, it is burning at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. And every one of those stars is burning at around that temperature, a little more or a little less. And each one of them was placed there by a God who created them, who spoke them into being. And each one of them is nothing less or nothing more than a spark or a little firefly compared to the God who placed them there. And guys, our view of God is going to determine how we fight sin, how we deal with sin, and how we approach God. And I'm telling you, we cannot have too big of a view of God. And with a God that big, with a God that righteous, with a God that holy, that becomes an unbelievably huge problem for us as sinners. And David here, he holds these two things together. And he doesn't chop one off just because it's more convenient. He doesn't chop the other one off just because um, it would be easier to explain. But he shows us that we should hold a view of God that we should both fear him, that we should plead with him to not deal with us as our sins deserve, and at the same time, the only place that we can run from this one who can destroy us is to him himself, because the one who can destroy us is the only one who can deliver us. You understand? This is the message of the Bible, and so many people have a fragmented view of God, and so sometimes it, it kind of works like this in, in Christian circles, is that you've got this mean, scary God in the Old Testament, and we're not really sure what was going on. He was just lighting people up, you know, Amalekites, gone, you know. And we're like, what? And then you've got the nice, cuddly Jesus in, in the New Testament. And he seems to be nice because he came and died for me. And so God's mean, and so Jesus must have, like, pleaded with him. But then you got John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he loved us so much, this infinitely holy God, that he, gave, that he gave his son. John Piper, um, I want to quote him here. This is very applicable to what we're talking about. He says, the problem in the universe is not our fragile marriages. The problem in the universe is not my failing health. The problem in the universe is not my wayward children. The problem in the universe is not the conflicts at work. The problem that the Bible was written to deal with is this. I have no hope of drawing near to God without being consumed. Because I am a sinner, and unless there is some kind of priest who can wrap me round with all that he is and take me into the center of this fire that is God, there is no hope for me at all. That is what the Bible is about. That guys, God in all of his holiness could absolutely consume us. But he is the one with whom we have to do. And we must understand that he's also the only one that can save us from our sin. And so we run to him. And again, 
David sees this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. But what does he say then? Verse 2, but be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Do you have a view of God that would allow you to speak those words that I just read in truth? See, if you don't have a view of God that you can both fear and that you can both run to, then you're not going to be able to worship properly. Does that make sense? Your view of God affects your worship. And I think that many times we have a hard time getting set on fire with a passion for the glory of God because our view of him just simply is not accurate. It's not accurate at all. To have a high view of God requires that we also have a horrific view of our sinfulness. Follow me here. Because at the center of our sin is a rejection of and a rebellion against an infinitely holy God. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 1. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, why is this good news? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, why is righteousness good news? Because because we're not righteous. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That is as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do we do? We suppress the truth. Now listen, because this speaks to the very center of what our sin is. For what can be known about God is plain to them, to all of us. Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, the kind of power that could set 100 billion trillion stars that are burning at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, that type of power. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, being all of us, all of mankind, We're without excuse. For although they, being all of us, although we knew God, listen, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. Now why is that so terrible? For although they knew God, his eternal power, being clearly seen through what's been created, created, we did not honor him, and we did not give thanks to him. That is the essence of our sin. And the reason it's so terrible is because honoring him and giving thanks to him, i.e., you could say, worshiping him, that is precisely what we were made to do. And the very thing that we were made to do, we said, no, I will not do it. I will choose something else, something lesser, something of my own choosing. But guys, here's the thing, Oops. is that you can run around, and all of us do, myself included, trying to worship other things, but it's not what you were made for. 
It's not what you were made for. And the fact that we worship other things and try to gain satisfaction in other things isn't just kind of like a misplaced focus. And we just need to come back to our purpose. It is cosmic treason. It is sin. It is why this infinitely holy God has every right to destroy us. But in his mercy and in his grace, he has made a way for us not to be destroyed. And that is to draw near to him in all of his eternality and his holiness. And we should absolutely do it with fear and trembling, knowing that it's all because of his grace. So here's the thing I want us to get, is that we cannot say that we have a high view of God while at the same time thinking that we're not that bad. That's all I'm trying to say. Is that if you're going to say you have a high view of God, then you must also have a very high view of man's sin or a very low view of man in general. Again, not that we're not valuable or worth something to him because he did die for us, but he gives us that worth. Paul read a devotional this morning. In our prayer time, Paul always just shares a little scripture or devotional or something before we pray here on, and also on, on Sunday mornings and also on Wednesday mornings. And uh, <coughs> part of the devotional we read said, uh, uh, the person that was writing it said that, you know, they'd heard it said that uh, God didn't die for frogs. And so he died for mankind, and that means, you know, we're, we're way more valuable than frogs, so, you know, get value and worth from that. Eh. And the devotional went on and said, that flips grace on its head. He says, frogs didn't need to be died for. Frogs didn't rebel against their creator. We did. So you understand, when, when we talk about sin, it's not, it's not a beat-down session I want us to be able to worship rightly. Because until we understand our rebellion, we will never understand the heights of God's grace and we will not be able to worship him with all, with all that he deserves. Um, guys, we were, we were made to worship. And, uh, and David here, again, you've seen this over and over in the Psalms, but again here, he knows that he's got to do business with the Lord. And so he pleads with him, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, yet he's holding on to the fact that God will be gracious. And I just want to ask this, like, guys, with the sin that you, and listen, I'm talking to Christians here too. If you don't know the Lord, come to the Lord. I plead with you, come to him in faith. Bow to him. Put your faith and trust in him. It is the only way that you can be saved. But I'm not just talking to people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking to you, Christian. See, how are you dealing with your sin? How are you trying to overcome the thing that continually trips you up and that has you bound in your life? If you're trying to overcome it by making promises to God, saying, Lord, I, I'm so thankful for all that you've done. I got this, Lord. I'm going to do better next time. You go out. You try your best. Here's all I got to say about that. How's that working for you? And if you say, oh, it's working great. Liar. You're a liar. Because Jesus is the only one who can overcome sin in our lives. 
But in in order for him to overcome sin in our lives, we have to draw near to him. We have to draw near to his infinite holiness, which, naturally speaking, is the last thing that we want to do. Jesus said it very clearly. He goes, men love the darkness and not the light. That's why they don't want to draw near to the light, for fear that their deeds be exposed. And one of the characteristics of true saving faith is that you step into the light, knowing that you could be consumed, but also knowing that it is absolutely, positively your only hope and the only place you will find refuge. And Christian, I want to encourage you this morning and exhort you, be strong and courageous. If sin has you bound, don't be a coward. Don't be a coward. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Be like David here who doesn't care who hears him. In fact, he writes a song about it. He writes a song about his sin. Did you catch that at the beginning? To the choir master with stringed instruments. So David picks up his guitar and he's like, Jesus, I I know you can light me up right now, but I need you. And he's singing about it. He doesn't care who hears And that has to be our attitude if we want to truly deal with sin. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. This seems to mean that the sheer awesome presence of God in our lives working for us, not against us, should produce a trembling in us. See, and this goes into my second point here. We've talked about theology and David's view of God. He's both the lion and the lamb. He fears him, yet he runs to him for mercy. But you see how this ties right in with that David has a view of sin that causes him to take it very seriously. And many times I see a lot of Christians that have a view of sin, homardiology, whatever you want to call it, they, we, we just don't take it seriously. And I think the reason we don't take it seriously, it all ties back to our view of God. But you see David here taking his sin very seriously and pleading with the Lord. And I love in, in verse 5, because David knows what's at stake. David, David knows that he was made to worship And so he says in verse 5, For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? In Sheol, in the Old Testament, we don't have time to go into this. This It's kind of an interesting study. But like the idea of the afterlife uh, in the Old Testament, the New Testament and Jesus coming sheds a lot more light on that. But this, this place of Sheol, it was like this place where the wicked go. Now David was a man after God's own heart. He trusted in the Lord. We're we're told in Romans, you know, that him along with Abraham, like all these Old Testament saints, they were all justified by faith. It wasn't by their works. But David, in his struggle against sin, he's taking it very seriously. He goes, I don't want to go down to Sheol. Lord, I, I can't worship you there. See, does your sin, are, are you so passionate and so consumed with wanting to worship Jesus every moment. And I don't just mean having to sing every moment of every day. Okay, I, I, 
acknowledge, like people would just tell you to stop, and some of you should because you can't sing, but um, just seeing if you're still awake. But, but what I mean by continually worship is like, is, is you know, Romans 12, 1, 2, that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. This is our spiritual act of worship, it says, that every moment is lived, is lived, is lived for him. Are you so serious about that type of worship that when you sin, you know that you're not doing that? And so you are quick to deal with your sin and to not let it sit there because you know that you were made to worship and you're not willing to let anything get in the way of that purpose for which you were created, which is to worship, which is to worship him. Mark Dever has another great comment on this. He says, without the holiness of God, sin has no meaning and grace has no point. If you're not at odds with sin, you're not at home with Jesus. Let me say that again. If you're not at odds with sin, you're not at home with Jesus. What he's saying is here on this earth, if you're close to Jesus, then it means you should be continually fighting sin. And if you're not fighting sin, then you can say that you're close to Jesus, but you're actually not. And guys, all of us have this, and I'm not what I'm not proposing here is some sort of sinless perfection. What I am proposing is that our attitude towards sin, the way that we fight it, is what marks us as Christians. Jesus, tell, I, I, he, Jesus was more explicit about this than anybody, even though he came to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven of our sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, obviously, none of the disciples or anywhere in the early church did they just, you know, chop off hands and gouge out eyes and walk around. Like, that's, it, but what he's speaking of is the severity with which we are to go after it and to deal with it. And I just... Guys, I know this could be a little bit uncomfortable, but I just, I want to ask you again this morning, what, what sin is in your life that is keeping you from fulfilling the purpose for which you were created, which is to continuously worship Jesus? And whatever it is, go after it. And go after it by drawing near to Him. Use all of your energy and effort not just to say, I'm going to do better, but to say, Jesus, I can't do better. I need you. And draw near to him. And David here, you see this journey that David is taking in calling out to the Lord for help and yet knowing that God could destroy him, yet he also has hope that God will deliver him. And man, it's a process and one of the things that will mark our lives, guys, if we take our battle with sin seriously, is there's going to be a lot of weeping, a lot of crying. You say, really, a lot? Well, I don't know. look at verse 6. I'm weary with moaning. Every night, I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. David is crying, and he's crying a lot, and he's crying over his sin. 
I wonder how much we weep over our sin. Throughout the Bible, too, you see David doing it at different times. You see Daniel doing it in Daniel chapter 9. is a beautiful prayer where Daniel, even though he was a very righteous man, he, when you come into the presence of God, uh, you are not aware of your righteousness when you're in the presence of God. <laughs> you're always aware of your sinfulness and of his holiness. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, he identifies with the sins of his nation even though he was really living as a light in the midst of that darkness. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's been prophesying for the you know, first five chapters in Isaiah chapter 6, and he's a priest, and he's, he's in the temple, and he's worshiping the Lord, and he sees the glory of the Lord fill the temple. And when he comes into the presence of God in a new and fresh way, the first thing he cries out is, Woe is me. I'm undone. And he begins to confess the sins of his people and his own sins. He says, for I live, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He's aware of his sin when he comes into the presence of God, and it should cause us to weep. And you know, uh, we were praying this morning back there, and I, and I pray, you know, like I don't, like what I'm not aiming for here, guys, is like for you to just outwardly work yourself up to where you weep and somehow, okay, see God, I cried now. Like I've, this is my penance. Cause, cause man, people do that. You can get yourself all hyped up and feel bad about the, the consequences of your sin and, and really, you know, act humble and broken, but you're still not really dealing with it. And you somehow, it becomes this kind of work that you do to make yourself right with God again. And all these things, cause with these, all oh, we have all these dark motives in our heart. But man, that God would grant us the ability, um, not the ability, but that he would grant us the gift of his presence coming among us in such a way where we're concerned not at all with what people think about us or what they might say, but we're concerned only with what he thinks about us um, and that we want him to deal to deal with our sin. And so these two things, this theology and the samardiology that David runs to God even though he fears God and he takes his sin very seriously. And these two things together, again, when you, one leads to the next. But David has this, just this wonderful view of salvation. And you see something break here in his life as he continues on and we watch him continue on in this process of coming to the Lord. He says, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. So now all of a sudden David turns and he's not talking to God anymore. He feels like he's gotten some breakthrough and he knows that God has heard his prayer for mercy. And so now he turns and he says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And then he says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. And I think that this is so, so, so helpful because I want to be clear. The one with whom you have to do and the one that we should fear first and primarily is Almighty God himself and his holiness. But there is also an enemy out there and he loves to mock, and he loves to accuse, and he loves to condemn, 
And the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to bring is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But see, you're not going to get excited about that if you don't understand what a wretch you are. You're not. But if you understand the depths of your sin and of your wickedness and God's just, righteous ability to destroy us if he wanted to, and then you understand that he sent his son and that through faith in that sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that there's no condemnation, brothers and sisters, that should make our hearts sing forever, forever and ever. And I'm not just talking about, for me, like I'm not just talking about almost 20 years ago now when the Lord truly grabbed a hold of my heart. But guys, do you know, do you know how much I still struggle with sin? Can I get an amen from anybody? Does anybody else struggle with sin? And when I come back again, time and time and time again to the cross, he never turns me away. Ever. It's unbelievable. Because I know that as an earthly dad, even with my boys, I'm like, I just told you. Don't do that. And you went and did it. And then God reminds me, Eric, how many times have I told you not to do that? And you went and did it again. And, and David here at the end, and guys, I want us to get this because this is what the gospel is all about. And again, you can't, you can't get to this good news if you don't understand the bad news. You can't get there. That's why it's so important that we take time to work through it, the holiness of God and our sinfulness. Because then you get to this good news. And now there's an enemy that's standing out about, this is the scene, and he's mocking him. Yeah, David, you messed up. That's right. You say you love God. You say you're a Christian. You say you're a Christ follower. You go to church. You read your Bible. You try to do all this and that, but you still mess up. And see, God's done with you. And David, man, he feels the weight of that. He knows that he's messed up. This guy isn't making stuff up. The enemy doesn't make stuff up. That's what makes our enemy, the devil, guys, so uh, it, it's tough. And why his words sting so much is because there's truth to them. Look at what Eric did again. Look at what Hannah did again. Look at what Bobby did again. See, does he really do that? That's exactly what, what he does. Revelation chapter 12. Now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of, of his Christ have come. For, listen, the accuser of our brothers, the devil, that dragon, the serpent, he's been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. 
How do you silence the accusation of the enemy in your life? Not just when he's saying you've sinned and you really haven't, but when you really have sinned, here's what you do. You draw near to the consuming fire that is Almighty God in the name of Jesus, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you read again the promises of the word, like Romans 8, 1, that say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you continue and you read on in Romans 8, where he goes on and he says things like this. He says, if God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Now, do you understand the logic of what he's saying here, guys? He's saying God is the one that we've sinned against. God is the one that has the right to judge us. But God is also the one who has justified us. And so if the one against whom we are guilty is now the one who has also justified us in Christ Jesus, devil, you can chirp all you want because my God says that I'm set free and that there's no condemnation. Amen? And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What is the testimony? It's not, I'm so good, or I read my Bible today. I spent 45 minutes in prayer today. God must really accept me today. What is the word of our testimony? The word of our testimony is that Jesus Christ died for me. That's it. And man, we cling to that testimony, even if the devil, no matter what type of temptations he brings, even if it's to the point of death, and trying to get us to deny it, we don't do it. We love not our lives unto death. We say with David boldly, as he says here in verse 8, Depart from me, devil. Depart from me, my enemies, you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord heard my plea. And what was his plea? His plea was, Lord, accept me according to your loving kindness. Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. And in the end, he says, all my enemies will be ashamed, greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Guys, uh, if you notice, our salvation, this this gospel message, um, it's all throughout this book. It's not just like in the gospel of John. Um, It's It's everywhere. Even David in the Old Testament, you can see that he got it. And I want you this morning, although I've said some heavy things about our sin and about our guilt, um, I want you to know that in the end, though, there's such good news that Jesus Christ was willing to make us righteous, not just because of us, but in spite of us, and ultimately for his glory. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. He writes to these Corinthians who were very haughty and proud and a little bit arrogant, and they had a boatload of nasty sin going on in their church, and they weren't dealing with it. 
And he starts the letter off in writing to this church by saying, he goes, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen, and because of him, because of God, because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, one of the ways you can tell whether or not you're fighting sin correctly, and if you're fighting it correctly, you'll be overcoming it little by little victoriously, is where's your boast? Who are you boasting in? And if you're boasting to yourself, say, I'm, I'm going to do better. I'm just not going to look at that anymore. I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. That boast is in you saying that you're going to do something. But when you come back again and you remind yourself of the gospel and you boast in the Lord and you overcome the enemy by the blood of Jesus and by the word of your testimony that that blood is enough, there's true victory. Worship team, you can come up. <coughs> we'll begin to close. Um, you know, guys, uh, our, our, in, very practically, in our fight against sin, um, theology matters. And, you know, theology proper, homardiology, soteriology, all the other ologies, they all matter. Uh, but in the end, when, when, as we begin to work through these things, uh, you need to get a grid, as David gives us here in this psalm, for there will be times in your life where you will be emotionally wrecked because of your sin and because of the sin of others around you, okay? Other people that you, that you love. And again, David here, I think it's good news that he gives us this grid that that's okay. Like, if you're weeping to the place where you're flooding your bed with tears and drenching your couch with weeping, that's actually normal to the Christian life. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's part of the deal, is that we work through these things uh, not just, just in some sort of mental, static way, but with passion, with conviction, with emotion, uh, because it hurts us. Because sin, in the end, it's not just, again, some abstract thing. It, it, it hurts, and it's pain. The Bible says it's, it's death. Um, but in Christ Jesus, there's always hope. And I just want you to know that if you're in a season of life where, man, you're there. I mean, I don't know. But I would guess that in a crowd this size, there's probably at least a few this morning, that you're in a season where you can relate to David. And every night your bed is soaked with tears. And your, and your couch is drenched with weeping. I just want to let you know that Jesus sees every single one of those tears, guys. Every one. The Bible says in another place in Psalms that he gets each one and he puts them in a bottle. Like, why would he do that? Well, the idea is just that he's counting them. Not one tear because of your sin or because of the sin of somebody else in your life that has hurt you. None of them are lost. But that we serve a God 
that's intimate and close, and he came near to save us. And guys, he's the one that did all the work. And we just got to continuously come back to him. I love this quote from Paul Washer, and I'll just read this and we'll be done. He says, God saved you for himself, from himself, by himself. Amen? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And guys, there's hope this morning. As we come in just a second here and as we partake of these things, his broken body and his shed blood, I want to urge you this morning, as I do every week, we take this every week and people go, oh, you got to search your heart. Yes, absolutely. Search your heart every single week. (laughs) Every week, search your heart. And then when you find sin and you find things that are dark there, welcome to the club. And I'm not making light of it at all, but I'm saying, where's, where's the only place that you can run to then? To Jesus. To his broken body and his shed blood. And so, you guys stand with me and let's do that.